is this SOB? Yeah, like who does he think he is? My thought exactly. Who is this SOB? Who is this SOB? Hey, this is Steve Noble, uber-conservative, Bible-thumping, Southern Baptist, syndicated talk radio show host, and I am that SOB. The one who has the nerve to take on some of the most popular podcasts in America when they are wrong, which is often, but much to the surprise of some of you, actually willing to admit it when they get it right, which happens from time to time. So maybe I won't be quite the SOB you expect me to be. Only time will tell. On today's podcast, Josh and Chuck at Stuff You Should Know state the obvious for all of you pro-choice folks out there. Ben Shapiro misses the mark a little when it comes to the idea of systemic racism. And Joe Rogan with his guest Brett Weinstein almost get to the point behind the protests, riots, looting, and monument destruction spreading across America. Hey, if you like what you hear today, please subscribe to the podcast and be sure to visit me at whoisthissob.com where you can leave your unfiltered opinion about the podcast or about me personally if you just have to go there. Okay, first up, Stuff You Should Know. It's hosted by two podcasters. They were formerly the senior editors at How Stuff Works, Josh Clark and Charles Wayne Chuck Bryant. This is uh, this <laughs> pretty remarkable that this podcast has been in the top 20 and in, and in many ways. Let's uh, I, I think that's a good thing because it's not about politics. It's not about the culture wars. It's not about death and crime and dismemberment. It's not about sex, like call her daddy. It's not uh, pontificating. It's not a bunch of political commentators. It's just how stuff works. So here's some of their recent stuff. We'll, we'll talk about today how ultrasound works. But uh, the Manhattan Grid, Hanked Blue, which is a kind of Robin's egg color, the war on fat, how flamethrowers work. Can you eat a tapeworm to lose weight? What about Fogua? Am I even pronouncing that right? I don't know. How Project Stargate worked. How the Black Panther Party worked. The Massacre at Tiananmen Square. Disappearing Dirty Dancing Lake. Uh, how jackhammers work. How narcolepsy works. Just <laughs> kind of just interesting uh, little factoids and explanations behind stuff. But uh, on this particular episode, very recent, they talked about ultrasound. And in doing so, they get to some things that, well, people that, uh, if you happen to be pro-choice, you're a big supporter of Planned Parenthood, a woman's right to her quote-unquote reproductive freedom, there's some things in here just using science that they make the obvious case that, well, that me and people like me and Bible-thumping people like me have been making for a few thousand years. So here's the first clip getting into how ultrasounds work. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, flying solo, batching it up. It's a stag party up in this piece. (laughs) Wow. And this is Stuff You Should Know. (laughs) Yeah, and you're speaking specifically of what's known as a sonogram, mm-hmm. uh, when a um, a device that you know we're going to talk about this in more detail, but a device called a transducer probe <laughs> it's so great. is either put on you or in you, mm-hmm. depending on preferably what, on you, <laughs> depending on what they're after or how close they need to get. Uh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And then what? Well, I mean, you know, I, I can speak from experience. One of the best things in the world is when you see that first little picture of uh, oh, baby yeah. and heart beating. I'll bet. Uh, and then the worst moment is when you go in there and get one and that heart isn't beating. 
Yeah. And it's a, a unnerving moment when you go in there for that stuff. And uh, like I said, it can be it can it feels both great and terrible. And I've, I've experienced all. Okay, so who would ever guess that a podcast like Stuff You Should Know would make such a profound statement, a profound recognition of reality when it comes to the issue of abortion, like virtually just a few minutes into the show. So he's talking about the result of an ultrasound, in this case, the ultrasound used to see a baby or to track a baby's progress or weight or size or whatever the case may be. Uh, And to see that, he described as one of the best things in the world but can also be one of the worst as well. Now, why is that? If it's just a clump of cells, if it's not a human being, if it's not a baby, if it's not a human, why would you have that kind of reaction? The reason he had that kind of reaction is because he was talking about his own child. I have four. If you have children, you know what that's like. If you don't, perhaps one day you will. But that was him stating the obvious. It's your child. You want that child, which makes a big difference. And so the use of the ultrasound either is joyous and brings great elation because you see your baby boy or your baby girl alive and well in the womb, or it's absolutely heartbreaking because you see your baby boy or your baby girl, uh, in the case of when you have a miscarriage, uh, not alive, otherwise known as dead. And so right here, two guys that do not do a podcast about politics or culture war stuff are stating the obvious when it comes to ultrasounds that that's a baby. And in this case, it's a baby that brings great joy or great heartache because that baby is wanted. But when the baby is not wanted or inconvenient, that changes the whole narrative. But it doesn't change the facts, which is why I found this podcast particularly interesting with respect to this subject. Okay, let's move on to the next clip. Yeah, and the cool thing about all of this is it's done in real time. Uh, it's not right. like they're doing this, and then a couple of days later you get your photo. I mean, it's it's all right there Right. Uh, in the case of a sonogram, and I guess every every use of it, but that's the only one I've experienced personally. Yeah. Uh, it's right there on the monitor, and, um, you know, you, you hear the little heart beating too, so it, it actually um, records sound as well. Okay, here they are pointing out another really cool aspect of sonograms, which is not just visually that you see this baby alive or or dead, which is what he was talking about in the previous clip, but in this time, hearing. And what do you hear? You hear a heart beat. You hear the heartbeat of your baby. And that's something, that's why a lot of places like Planned Parenthood, they don't want you to see the ultrasound image because you'll see not a clump of cells, but even as early as five and a half, six weeks, there's a heartbeat. And they won't do an abortion typically they're eight or 10 weeks. Unfortunately, I have to tell you the reason why, because they need to make sure it's big enough that when they pull it out of there, they got all the parts. Because if they leave anything inside, that could lead to a very serious infection, which could lead to death. But they heard that heartbeat. And And again, if that baby is wanted, that heartbeat brings you great joy and elation. If that baby is unwanted, I can only imagine how difficult that would be to hear because it's confirmation of something that I would say you already know, that that's not a clump of cells. It's not something other. It's a human being. It's your human being. It's your baby. And by the way, have you ever heard what that sounds like? Let me play that for you. Just 
Okay, you got to admit that's pretty cool, isn't it? That means about 150 beats per minute. Okay, so those little uh, those little kids are uh, cranking it up when it comes to uh, getting their heartbeat up there, uh, which is part of the process. Then the the guys that uh, stuff you should know started to talk a little bit about 3D ultrasounds, which are highly detailed, really fascinating. And uh, and again, they swerve back into this use of language and and actually terms of endearment because you're listening to I don't know whether. Uh, it's uh, Josh or Chuck, that's actually the father, uh, but you're listening to the reactions or the uh, interactions with the information, the scientific t- scientific information from a parent's perspective. And by the way, if you've ever been pregnant, even if you had an abortion, you're a parent. That was your son. That was your daughter. So because he experienced the elation of parenthood and also the great disappointment of losing a baby, I assume it was a miscarriage, uh, that's why you hear him talking in personalized language because that's reality that's the truth that's these guys talk about stuff you should know and how things work and this is stuff that you probably already know but i thought it was a fascinating and an effective opportunity to kind of challenge everybody out there perhaps that's you that are like to still try to convince yourself that it's not a baby it's not a human it's not a child it's just a thing or it's just a a mass of cells but science says otherwise and I assume you're not a science denier. Okay, this is the 3D ultrasound part. Yeah, and like I said, if you've never seen a, a 3D picture, it ain't right from a sonogram. It's it's pretty interesting. It's remarkable that they can get this level of detail, um, and part of it is surely uh, to delight parents to be. Um, there's no right. doubt about it. But it's not just for that. It's not like, hey, you want to see an even cooler creepy picture of that developing circus peanut because we can we can do that now yeah um it has a lot of uses you can there's a lot more detail you can really assess development of uh of limbs and and the face of the uh of the baby to be Mm -hmm. and you can really get in there and kind of see more with your eyeballs what's going on okay so i'm sure you see what i'm talking about that was kind of funny uh what was the phrase he used that circus peanut (laughs) <laughs> I get that as a dad, I get that. Uh, but then this next one, and then we'll move on. But this is, uh, this one's a little more shocking and disturbing, not because of what they say, but because of how this particular information, that's a result of, of ultrasound, how it gets used in the abortion industry. And again, I, I, I'm not trying to upset you for, for just for the sake of upsetting you if you happen to be somebody that's a supporter of abortion. I'm just trying to present you with the facts, to present you with the truth, stuff you should know, just like the name of the podcast. So check this out, then I'll finish it up, and then we'll move on to uh, Ben Shapiro. So we talked enough, I think, about, well, we're going to talk a little bit more about it, about obstet- obstetric. Oh, man, I knew I was going to do that. <laughs> Obstetrics. Yep. And when you go in there, like I said, part of it is to delight parents to be and say, here it is. Everything's going. Heartbeat is strong. Everything's happening. But they're also doing all sorts of things. They measure the size of the fetus. Um, They use a a mouse to sort of click around and measure different distances. Uh, They determine due date. Uh, They want to make sure that fetus is in the right position. Mm -hmm. Uh, They want to make sure the placenta is in the right position. They want to see how many fetuses there are in there. That's when you get the old, uh, by the way, did not know if you knew this, but there are actually three living things inside of you right now. Okay, so let me take you uh, into the darker recesses of how an abortion clinic works because they use ultrasound machines at abortion clinics just like they do at crisis pregnancy centers. At a crisis pregnancy center, they want the mom and the dad, if he's there, 
to see the baby so that you know, okay, that's a baby, that's a human, a head, a neck, two arms, two legs, fingers, toes, nose, eyes, mouth, the whole nine, right? So you could see why a crisis pregnancy center would want the mom to see the, the baby, to see the image. But you can also understand why the Planned Parenthood or whatever the abortion clinic is would not, because then that's going to bring that mom dad, emotion, reality, truthfulness into the conversation, which doesn't help when they're trying to get you to abort your baby, right? So one of the dark uh, little realities of the abortion industry is when they're using the ultrasound, uh, the main reason they use it, and the guys at Stuff You Should Know mention this, is they're determining the size of the fetus, uh, different distances, length of the arms and legs, so on and so forth. The due date, how many are there, they use that information then to determine the price, How much does it cost? How far along are you? The further along you are, the more it costs, the more the abortion costs you because it involves more from the doctors. At a very young young age, like eight, 10 weeks, then they can do a suction abortion. When you get up to more like 14 and 16 weeks, they have to do, and I'm sorry to be just so brutally upfront with you, kind of piece by piece uh, pull apart uh, dismemberment, abortion. So they need to know how far along you are. They need to see the size of the baby so they can determine the price. The bigger the baby, the more money that they will charge you to do the abortion. So again, for me as a Christian and obviously a pro-life person to encounter, when I saw that the uh, stuff you should know was doing ultrasound, my, my, my first question was, I wonder how they're going to handle one of the main uses of ultrasound, which is to see babies and baby development. And I wonder if they'll swerve into the lane of the abortion conversation. They did not, at least as far as I could tell, certainly not on purpose, but they did because they were dealing with, as they do on Stuff You Should Know, how things work, what's reality, what's the truth. And just by listening to these few short clips, I think you can see that they were dealing with the truth as they looked at what's inside a womb, not a clump of cells, not just a choice, not woman's reproductive health care, but a baby. And that is the truth. Again, unless, like I said before, you're a science denier, which I assume you are not. Okay, let's move on to Ben Shapiro and his uh, intersection with racism, systemic racism. And, uh, and, and he kind of misses the mark there, which you may be surprised that I'll take issue with Ben Shapiro, but I do. Okay, in this particular episode, uh, this particular segment of this episode for Shapiro's show, he called it soft, the soft bigotry of low expectations, which is a great uh, thought. It's a great philosophical principle. It's a great thing to wrestle with and discuss and learn from. Uh, but he basically kind of wraps it up into the whole current conversation that we have about racism in general and specifically about this whole notion of systemic racism, institutionalized racism that the American system is uh, run through, shot through, as he says, with racism. And so there's parts of that. Now, this is what happens. Shapiro does it. Candace Owens does it. A lot of conservatives do it, whether they're black or white. And they just whole cloth dismiss that notion that there's nothing systemic Nothing uh, integrated into the system of how the United States of America works that is inherently racist. So they tend to just write it off because it's a very nuanced conversation. It's an in-depth conversation. Like a lot of things, like the racism situation as a whole in America 
is not a one tweet, one post, one Instagram meme conversation. It has to be ongoing. It's in-depth. It's backwards, forwards, one step forward, two steps back. Everybody's got left feet, and we're trying to learn how to dance better together. And it's very challenging. So one of the things that I, uh, the, the main thing I, that I'm bringing up with this particular episode of Shapiro is, is that whole notion. And they just kind of write it off, which I think is uh, incorrect, ineffective. And for me, as a Christian uh, follower of Jesus Christ, uh, unloving. But as an Orthodox Jew, Ben Shapiro is not operating out of the same worldview that I am. In many ways, we are. I agree with him most of the time. But in this case, I think he's off. So let's explore that. And he, but he starts off this particular segment of his of his podcast uh, just in a way that might su- surprise many liberals. The things that he says here. So check it out. It's Juneteenth, a great time to celebrate American history. The goalposts for anti-racism keep moving further and further down the field, and Joe Biden gets a pass on like everything. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is the Ben Shapiro Show. <laughs> Now, of course, Juneteenth didn't end the story of racism in America or discrimination in America, but it was the end of slavery, and it was the the marker that America was attempting to fulfill its founding promises. Juneteenth should be a national holiday. The reason it should be a national holiday is because America, there's a good case to be made that America essentially had two foundings. Neither one was in 1619. The first founding was in 1776 with the establishment of universal principles, and the second was in 1865 with the fulfillment of the promise for black Americans that they were not to be slaves or to be excluded from the Constitution of the United States and the Declaration of Independence. Of course, it would take another century for black Americans to really feel the full fruits of their rights because of endemic racism and white supremacy that existed in the United States, particularly in the southern half of the United States. But this was the beginning of the of the fulfillment of the dream of the of the founding fathers that they themselves were unable or unwilling, depending on which founder you're talking about, to fulfill. So Juneteenth should absolutely be a national holiday. And in fact, there are Republicans today who are sponsoring that. I mean, among other symbols that we should be looking at, by the way, Frederick Douglass, good case he should be on the on the national currency. And they've been talking about Harriet Tubman. That's fine. Harriet Tubman was a hero, a heroine. But Frederick Douglass is my pick. Frederick Douglass, the, the guy who who essentially connected the promises of the Declaration of Independence with the hope of black Americans living in slavery. Okay, so did that surprise you at all? If you're a Ben Shapiro fan, it might have surprised you. If you can't stand Ben Shapiro, it might have surprised you as well that uh, he thinks that Juneteenth should be a national holiday. I absolutely agree with him. What an incredibly important day in American history. And it's kind of like Christmas. Juneteenth was when the uh, news of the Emancipation Proclamation reached the last of the slaveholders and the slaves, which was in Texas. But obviously, the actual legalization or changing of the law, I should say, about slavery took place uh, with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments when all that was dealt with, particularly the 13th Amendment. But you get his point. So awesome. Juneteenth, I agree. Federal holiday. Even talked about Booker Washington and Frederick Douglass, people like that, specifically Frederick Douglass, should be in our national currency. Not because that's some kind of pandering to African Americans or to try to deal with our racist past, but because somebody like Frederick Douglass uh, is an American hero and helped deal with America's original sin and is deserving. Forget what color he is. He's deserving. It's a great message for America to do that on a number of levels. So those things are great. But then in the next clip, he starts diving into these things that I'm going to take issue with. But before we do, there's one thing he said that's really, really important. He, he, He referenced after the 1860s, 
and the elimination of slavery in America, uh, he, his quote was endemic racism and white supremacy. Now, he uses a lot of fancy words, right? It's Ben Shapiro. He's, he's genius. Uh, but endemic just means regularly found or common. So common, regularly found racism and white supremacy. And he said for 100 years after that. So from the 1860s to the 1960s, and then we get into the civil rights movement, there was an operational worldview and substructure to many things in America that was driven or largely impacted by endemic racism and white supremacy. Okay, super important that he acknowledges that he loses it a little as he goes on. And and we'll look at that. Okay, let's go on to the next clip. With all of that said, this should be a time to celebrate how far American history has come. Because let's be quite real about this. Anybody who's attempting to link the, the lives today of black Americans with the lives of slaves and, and make a comparison between the two, that, that comparison just does not exist. If you were living in slavery versus black Americans at the highest levels of, of government, of culture, of business, having all of the same rights, and in some cases, having actual legally established preferences in particular college admissions, the idea of that being a reality in the United States in 1865 would have been ultimately would have been for, for most, for virtually all black Americans, completely unthinkable. And it is an amazing achievement of the United States that we have worked so hard to vitiate the evil legacy of slavery and Jim Crow bigotry and racism in American society. Okay, so the first thing he says is, is anybody trying to link the lives of African-Americans today to the lives of slaveries, to the lives of slaves back in uh, 1700, 1600, 1700s, uh, 1800s, up to the point of the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment, that that's just ridiculous. Now, yes, uh, the life of your average African-American today cannot be compared to the life of a slave, a chattel slave, a black African slave, mostly in the Deep South in the 16, 17, and 1800s. There, there is no comparison there. That's just a fact. And like Ben likes to say, facts don't care about your feelings. However, feelings are not irrelevant. So you have to be very careful. This is my problem with somebody like Ben and other conservatives that just, that just very uh, kind of cold and calculating just dismiss the whole thing. And so one of the things you need to remember, and most people aren't even aware of this, this has been proven by scientists that trauma can be passed down genetically. So the trauma of 250 years of slavery starting around 1619 in Jamestown, which I'm not going to get into a history lesson here, but Jamestown was debauchery, scumbag, sick. That's where slavery first started here in the Americas, in North America, versus Plymouth with the Puritans, the, the, uh, Pilgrims, the religious separatists, that's a different group, okay? Now, eventually all that stuff merged together, but it's important to remember for the sake of history and reality and truth that 1619 had two different things going on there. But anyway, back to what he was talking about. The trauma of 250 years of slavery can be then ingested, so to speak, at the genetic level and passed down. So, you have to be really careful. I think he makes this mistake. A lot of conservatives make this mistake. I'm trying not to make that mistake of just wholesale dismissing that. Yes, Ben, I agree. African-Americans today do not live like slaves of 200 years ago. However, the slavery of 200 years ago is not irrelevant. It's part of your past. You're going to hold on to that for some reasons that are good, for some reasons that are not. But it is a reality and it can have lingering effects which Ben's going to get to. But there's, again, in this clip that he's acknowledging and something that I think we need to acknowledge. We need to, where's the celebration? 
And in the face of existing racism, I know it's a sticky subject to say we should be celebrating anything, but where is the celebration? We should. It's like watching the movie Hidden Figures. I'm like, holy cow, why didn't I know this story of these three incredibly brilliant black women in the 1950s and 60s who came up through the white system at NASA and, and all of that going on, all that racism, and yet were helpful, I mean, to a large degree, enabling some of the successes of NASA and the space program. I mean, I'm like, why didn't I know this story? Why didn't anybody ever teach me this story? Why did I have to wait to see a movie when I'm 52 or whatever? It was ridiculous. So there have been great accomplishments when we look at slavery ending in 1865 and then where we're at in 1965, and, and Ben lists off some incredible accomplishments, not the least of which nobody likes to talk about this. The fact that we had not a one-term, but a two-term African-American president of the United States, the highest position in the land, the most powerful person arguably on the planet, America voted him in. America, racist, slavery past America, put a black man in the White House. Huh. Nobody, especially on the left, nobody likes to give any credit to that whatsoever. And black people didn't just, aren't the only ones that got Barack Obama into office. There were millions of white people that voted for him. So I hope you get my point. So kudos to Ben on that, but he's missing or dismissing this, this subcontext, the subtext of slavery and the history of racism, as he said, the endemic racism and white supremacy that lasted for at least another 100 years after we abolished slavery. So let's go on to the next one because we just have to pull these apart one at a time. But this, I think, is a very important point and worthy of your time and mine. That the cause of America when it comes to racism is vitiating actual racism, getting rid of actual racism. And it is not a substitute to simply suggest that equality is the, is the definition Equality of outcome is the definition of anti-racism because those two things are not actually related. There's no equality of outcome in the white community. There's great income gaps in the white community. There's great income gaps between old people and young people. Equality of outcome is not the measure of anti-racism. Anti-racism is the measure of anti-racism, being against racism. Okay, that clip is a perfect example of this kind of razor's edge that we have to dance on when it comes to this subject. He's talking about what this is a great statement that everybody needs to work through and understand. Equality of outcome is not the definition of anti-racism, meaning when we say our measure of racism being cleansed from the American experience is when all black people largely succeed to the same level as all white people. Now, for some people, that's actually how they see it. That's actually an economic poverty issue. It's not a color issue exclusively. Now, there are issues involved. That's why this is you're on a razor's edge here. That's why th there are issues involved with racism and color and that affecting your economic opportunity simply because of the color of your skin. But there's also, and this is a, a third rail that a lot of people on the left don't want to talk about, there's also personal responsibility. Ben's going to unpack this a little bit. Uh, and and, and typically, we either go all one way or the other. Oh, personal responsibility is an ugly word because you're dismissing our past and you're dismissing the impact of racism. Or, no, I don't have any personal responsibility at all because the whole system has been wrecked for a couple hundred years and uh, that's caused hopelessness in my life and therefore I have no other alternative. There is no way, there is no escape hatch for me because I'm black. So you see the danger of going too far either way. But he does a good job of, of stating that equality of income outcome is not the definition of anti-racism. Anti-racism is the definition of anti-racism, Ben said. I go, okay, 
But it's a little deeper than just one good little statement. And that's where I think Ben makes this mistake, and a lot of conservatives make the mistake, that they don't spend much time dealing with, as he called it, the after effects to history. That's a great line that we should all remember, the after effects to history, which is a little different than saying systemic racism, where everything, a lot of the system in place today is designed still to keep black people down. And I think there are some parts of the system that are designed, that were designed originally to do that. And, and whether people that are championing those things, welfare and so on and so forth, are actually doing it because they actually want to keep black people down, or that's just the result of it. That's not actually their intention. It's hard for me to tell because I can't read their heart. But that's a reality that's out there. And so, again, my main point in, t- in engaging Ben's podcast on this is he makes it very black and white and doesn't spend much time dealing with the complexities of 250 years of this racial history in the United States of America. If you want to go back 400 years, that's fine. But does that? I hope that makes sense. That, but we just don't take the time to do it. You know, he's going to do a 25-minute segment on this, and that's the end of it. And it comes up in his radio show. It comes up all over the place. But we don't unpack that very much. And conservatives tend to just kind of write it off, and liberals tend to just stay there and don't bring in the other side of the conversation. I'm trying to bring in both. That's the whole point. All right, so in this next one, he starts talking about the New York Times article, and we'll finish up on on this section with some things from this article where they basically looked at, the name of the article I'm looking at, it is called The Gaps Between White and Black America in Charts. And when you just start looking at it, you're going to go, well, that's terrible. And then the assumption being for a lot of people, it's because the whole system is racist. But again, that's an oversimplification. It gets individuals off the hook, which no individual should be off the hook for making their decisions in life. But we also can't totally dismiss as Ben said, the after effects of history, or as I mentioned earlier, the genetically passed down challenges from trauma. So let's check out, this is when he starts talking about the New York Times article. It's called The Gaps Between White and Black America in Charts. And we're going to go through this in a second because the obvious implication is that the reason that these gaps exist and have continued to exist is because of continuing systemic racism in the United States. Now, there are after effects to history. I've said this before a thousand times on the show. There are obviously after effects to history. If you bar somebody from buying a house in 1960, that will have some follow-on effect for not being able to give your house to your kids, for example. That is true. But there are certain gaps that certainly cannot be explained by history, and that includes the continuing wide income gap or the education gap or the single motherhood gap. That cannot be explained by history, particularly when you are looking at such a radical escalation in particular communities. To suggest that America is more racist now than it was in 1960, and when in 1960... The black single motherhood rate, by the way, single motherhood is the single greatest indicator of intergenerational poverty. When the black single motherhood rate in 1960 was 20%, and when today it is in excess of 70%, and in some heavily black communities, it's in excess of 90%, that cannot be blamed on racism. It cannot. There's just no way to do it, especially because the single motherhood rate has risen concomitantly in the white community, just not quite as fast. And you can't cite racism when you are saying, okay, I'm going to get a girl pregnant and walk out, which leads to poverty, which leads to poverty. For your kid and for your and for the woman you knocked up, if you decide to drop out of school, this is a personal decision that you cannot blame on racism or slavery. But the attempt to say that everything that is unequal in outcome is a is a remnant of slavery and Jim Crow 
is is a dangerous but pervasive idea in today's modern America. Okay, let's start back what he was talking about. The uh, back to this phrase that we all should should remember after effects of history. And he was talking about housing and that all of a sudden if you have problems with the housing in the past which is redlining, redlining in a really simple explanation was uh back when you had the migration from southern blacks to the north in the north, they started to, literally on a map in cities, redline the neighborhoods where these black people were coming to live. And they would redline those neighborhoods, and that would affect homeownership lending. And so the closer you were to those neighborhoods, the less likely you were to get a loan. If you're in those neighborhoods, you're probably not going to get a loan at all. And so you can see the problem there. Hey, don't go. We're, we're going to decentivize a black homeownership and people living around blacks. And so what's going to happen? People are going to move further and further away from blacks. Blacks get stuck in the inner city and the whole thing starts to compound on itself. Okay. That's what he's talking about. And those are after effects of history. That's super important, but you got to, you can't dismiss that the racist underpinnings of redlining because that's what it was all about. Oh yeah. The blacks are trouble. These Southern blacks. Yeah. We need to isolate them. Yeah, the closer you are to them, the worse it gets. You see, you can see, I hope you can see how problematic that is. I'm sure you can. So he's talking about that. And then he brought up, you know, America's not more racist than it was in the 1960s. I would agree with that. And this is a really important point that, again, we have to be careful because we're dancing on a razor's edge here. Uh, racism as an individual versus racism, including uh, our past and the after effects of history and the systems today. And then again, he started talking about personal responsibility. When he talked about racism cannot be used to explain the continuing wide uh, income gap uh, between blacks and whites, the single motherhood gap, or the education gap simply cannot be explained by history. So he dismisses history, which I think, especially in the context of where we are today, is uh, unwise because there are after effects of history. So on the one hand, he says, hey, you have to acknowledge after effects of history. And, the, and what is that history, Ben? Well, the history is racism, slavery and racism. And so to say, hey, it cannot be explained by history on the one hand, and then to say you agree with the after effects of history on the other is uh, illogical. You're violating your own principle, your own statement there. And that's, that's my biggest problem with what he did here in this podcast. Because he talked about, listen, here's another reality that's hard for a lot of people to swallow. In 1960, the black single motherhood rate was 20%. Today, it's over 70%, uh, mostly nationwide, and in some places, over 90%. And it says it cannot be blamed on racism. It cannot, he said emphatically. And I say, mostly it cannot be. But we do have a system put in place by Democrats where a mom is low, low income mom, welfare mom is incentivized by the government. If you have more kids and there's no man in the home, you're going to get more money from the government. Well, is that inherently racist in itself? Was it, Hey, let's, we have this insidious plan and here's what we're going to do. We understand that people are fallen human beings. They have a sin nature that they can be lazy and get away with it. They will. If they can take advantage of a system in order to benefit themselves, they will. So let's build a system for these blacks where uh, we're going to incentivize them and we'll break up their families. And uh, if the more babies you have, the more money we'll give you, but not if your man is at home. So we want to destroy the black community. This is a really subtle, long-term way of doing it. Now, I don't think any Democrat actually thought like that. That's the impact. That's the effect. Uh, but I think uh, there is one person who's a spiritual being who definitely would love that. And I know this is going to ruffle some feathers, but that would be the father of all lies. That would be the devil. That would be Satan. He's here to kill, steal, and destroy, the Bible says. 
So he's going to take advantage of government. He's going to take advantage of your goodwill or the government's going to goodwill. He's going to take advantage of the fallen nature of mankind, black, white, yellow, whatever, to destroy and kill and steal, which is exactly what we see happen. But again, Ben violating his own, hey, there's after effects to history, but you can't blame history. Huh? So it's much more subtle than that. It's much more involved than that. And I think for conservatives, uh, that's a bad idea to just write it off. I think you lose any influence you have. The conversation ends at that point because you're just totally dismissing it. But you also have to deal with the reality that personal decisions uh, have a huge impact too. It's both. It's not either or. It's both and. Racism, racist past, after effects of history, and personal responsibility. But in the political environment we're in, people don't like to do to both things because that deals with both sides. And usually we just like to divide and try to conquer. So that's the problem here. And I hope you see that. Now, I could go on and on with this and go through the rest of Ben's comments because uh, there's a lot there. But we just, I mean, for the sake of your time and my time, I just th- that's not the point of this podcast. The point of the podcast is to just bring up different points, different perspectives from some of the most popular podcasts out there for me as a Christian, conservative Christian, with that worldview and you with whatever worldview you have, you may be, agree, be in agreement with me on that or maybe completely opposite. But just to kind of point some things out, offer a different perspective, try to broaden the conversation. And that's why I'm willing to go after people, quote unquote, on my own side, where I think they're being uh, disingenuous or missing the boat. Uh, but oftentimes I'm going to just take a lot of issue with, with especially more liberal podcasts. Ben Shapiro obviously isn't a liberal one, but to deal with those things and to call that out and to engage and to offer a different perspective. The challenge that, that we have, and I've said this over and over again in these first six episodes of the Who Is This SOB podcast, is that we all tend to be uh, live in our echo chambers. We don't spend any time listening to the other side. We don't even, we don't even entertain the opposite side of our positions because I think digital media and social media has just made us lazy. And it's boring and it's safe. And so it's just, just hang out with people that agree with you, what you think all the time. And there's never any strife and everybody's just making each other, Hey, we're all brilliant. We figured it out. Everybody else is a moron, except that doesn't work. (laughs) You just become ignorant and intellectually dishonest most of the time. So on, on this particular subject, poverty, racism, institutional racism, our history, our racist history, our slave history, uh, I, I talk about that regularly. So if you want to hear more of my thoughts on that particular subject, that's what the radio show is for that I've been doing since 2007. That Because it's five days a week, an hour a day gives me a lot more room to run. But for the sake of your time and for the sake of my time, let's move on. We'll finish this uh, episode six of Who is This SOB with Joe Rogan uh, with a very smart and very liberal guest, Brett Weinstein, who from the Evergreen fiasco, which happened in uh, Seattle a, a few years ago. Uh, Another interesting take on what's going on in the country right now, but uh, number one podcaster on the planet, Mr. Joe Rogan. Okay, so who is Brett Weinstein when you do what Joe Rogan asked you to do? If you Google it, just Google Evergreen State Brett. That's all you have to do. Evergreen State Brett. Brett with one T. And when you go to the Wikipedia article, it's a... Quick, a quick read in terms of what happened. In March 2017, he wrote a letter to Evergreen faculty objecting to a change in the college's decades-old tradition of observing a day of absence during which minority students and faculty would voluntarily stay home from campus to highlight their contributions to the college. The announced change would flip the traditional event, asking white participants to attend an off-campus program to talk about race issues while an on-campus program was designed for participating people of color. Weinstein said this established a dangerous precedent. This is what he said. 
And this went viral on his campus and then viral around the country. There's a huge difference between a group or coalition deciding to voluntarily absent themselves from a shared space in order to highlight their vital and underappreciated roles. He's talking about African-Americans, people of color, and a group encouraging another group to go away. The first is a forceful call to consciousness, which, of course, uh, which is, of course, crippling to the logic of oppression. The second is a show of force and an act of oppression in and of itself. So that set off this huge controversy there. He and his wife ended up leaving. <clears throat> Not sure if they fired or they quit. They they sued. Uh, they resigned. They got uh, ended up getting a settlement of about 500 grand. And uh, so that that's where Brett Weinstein was coming from in this particular situation with Evergreen State. And then he was talking about uh, forcing differences of opinion. How do you handle differences of opinion? Do you take to the streets? Do you then shut down other people's opinions? That's we've seen the, the assault on free speech at college campuses around the country. And he said, this is only going to get worse and it's going to explode. He's been a, a guest on Joe Rogan's many, many times, uh, Brett Weinstein. So that's a, that's the kind of the premise here and why he has him on the show to then say, okay, now look around America right now, uh, May and June of 2020. And what you said was going to happen is happening. That's the reason Joe had him on the show. So let's uh, let's kick it off there on the Joe Rogan Experience with Brett Weinstein. Joe Rogan Podcast, check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. If anybody sounded the alarm that all this madness was going to come to fruition in the real world, it's you, sir. You were, you were the guy. Like, you were the one who was saying this is what's happening at Evergreen. And if you don't know, go Google it. Brett Weinstein, Evergreen. And now it spills out into the real world. Some of them have started to call and say, I got it wrong. What do we do now? And actually, I, I appreciate those, those calls and those contacts because really that is the question. Yeah, what do we a, do now to pull it back? Yeah. get the genie back in the bottle? Or as Douglas Murray says, how do you put the brakes on this thing? How do you put the brakes on this thing indeed? Well, I have to tell you, I'm not optimistic. Um, I think that this is actually the people who are catching up to the fact that Evergreen has now spilled over into the world um, have not caught up to the fact that this is um, unstoppable at this point with the current configuration. The absence of leadership is going to prevent us from doing what we should do. And that means that the next set of predictions are far more dire. What is your next set of predictions? Well... I would say we are headed for a collision course with, with history. I mean, we're really staring at many scenarios that end in some kind of civil war. And while I do think it is still possible to avert that outcome, I don't know the name of the force that gets in its way. Wow. That's, that's, some, pretty, <laughs> that's some pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? So, uh, what spilled out of Evergreen, again, these two uh, equally opposite, uh, strong, engaged forces uh, coming at each other using force, okay, shut up, get off campus, using force to shut the other one down as opposed to having any kind of constructive dialogue. Uh, unstoppable at this point, he said, Brett said that, the absence of leadership prevents us from doing what we should do. And he's talking, what should we do? That, that's dealing with these issues of racism, institutional racism, police over-policing, police brutality, so on and so forth. But because there's no leadership, and he's talking about the movement, BLM, Antifa, the whole thing that's going on with the 
protests and the rioting and the looting and the property destruction and pulling down monuments, all that kind of stuff is what he's talking about. Then he said, but it's going to be far more dire than just what happened at Evergreen. And Joe's like, well, what do you mean? He's talking about, this is very important, a collision course with history. So you might think that you're watching white versus black, Republican versus Democrat, police versus African-Americans. You might think that you're dealing with uh, white supremacists or people that are ignorant or entrenched versus the woke crowd, but it is way bigger and way deeper than that. This is an existential calamity, an existential clash between massively different worldviews. That's why he said it's collision course with history. And then there's something he said right there at the end that's really worth noting, especially got my attention as a Christian. I mean, this is a really powerful observation of his. And obviously, Brett Weinstein is not a, not a Christian as far as I know. But did you catch it right there at the end? He's basically predicting at this point an actual civil war, another civil war here in America. But he said it's, it seems unstoppable. I don't know the name of the force that would be able to get in its way. That's what he said right there at the end. And I'm like the kid in the back of the class putting my hand up and going, I know, I know, I know, I know the name of the force that'll get in its way because the problem here in America, Ben Shapiro was talking about it earlier. And then these guys are going to talk about it as well. Joe Rogan and Brett Weinstein is we've lost any kind of commonality of basic fundamental principles, fundamental principles of what it means to be human, fundamental principles of what it means to be American, to live in a civilized society, to be able to operate in a society uh, as one country, although with various understandings and differences and uh, religious beliefs or non-religious beliefs. How do you do that? And there's no name that he can think of, no force that he can think of that would stop the civil war. I know of one. That's the unique attribute, one of the unique attributes of Christianity. What happens for me, a white guy, what happens for a black guy, a white woman, a black woman, a black, uh, an, an Asian, a Hispanic, a rich person, a poor person, a person of privilege, a person with no privilege, a person born into a nice part of the world and a person born into a slum. When you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden you all get on the same page, that page being the teachings, especially the teachings of Jesus Christ. That unifies, it strips away all the things that make us different, although those are still important. But we then have a common language, a common base. We build our house on the same foundation. Our houses are built on the same foundation. And that, that is what allows this remarkable level of unity that you can achieve inside the Christian church when we do it God's way, when we do it Jesus's way. That is a force that solves all of this, but it's the one force that most people want to leave out. How do you get back to a found, to we if we're not going to agree on our founding fathers' principles, which are universal, by the way, whether you like them or not, strip away anything you think about the founding fathers. Just look at the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, not given to you from the government, not given to you from the Democrats or Republicans, given to you. You have them. You are in possession of them simply because you're made in the image of God. That gives you inestimable worth. You're worthy of dignity and respect. And the government can't, doesn't give you those, and they certainly can't take them away. But we've walked away from the founding fathers' principles because we've attached the principles to the founding fathers. What's true is true regardless of who says it. So, Brett, I do know who can stop that. The question is, who's interested in hearing from him? The actual author of history, the actual purveyor of truth. 
Jesus Christ. Most people aren't worthy, aren't willing to listen to that, which as long as that remains true, you'll continue to see what's happening. Okay, let's move on to this next clip. Really fascinating, com- fascinating conversation with these guys, uh, as usual on the Joe Rogan podcast. Okay, so one thing that we're seeing is, and we really have to take this back a number of years to understand why it happened, but we are seeing Occupy 2.0. Mm. Now, I participated in Occupy. Originally, Occupy made a lot of sense. It was a complaint about the TARP program and too big to fail and the fact that the American public was uh, not protected when those who had created the financial collapse were. And that was a legitimate uh, gripe and it was also a legitimate gripe at the beginning of the Tea Party movement. Occupy then morphed into an anarchist movement that was just simply hostile to civilization and it became absurd. And so when I say this is Occupy 2.0, this is the anarchist version of Occupy that has now reemerged and it has fused with Black Lives Matter, which, as I've said, lots of different places. If Black Lives Matter just simply meant what those words imply, I'd be on board with it. Um, It doesn't. It means a great deal more than that. And we're beginning to see that in the last couple of weeks. What else do you think it means? Well, let's put it this way. For some reason, it means uh, abolish the police, which is possibly the stupidest proposal I have ever heard. And it's not like we haven't seen what happens when you do that. I've Don't you think it. that that's a, just a fearful response to the obvious police brutality that we saw in Minneapolis? What's the best response? We got to do something. We need to defund the police. And then everyone's like, good job. Great, great first step, at least. Well, no, it's a no. dishonest presentation. And I'm concerned that there, as I've also said in many places, the proposals that are coming out of this movement are quite foolish. The strategy is incredibly smart. And so that is confusing to people because when you hear folks in the street demanding that we abolish the police, you think, well, okay, that's never going to happen. If it even started to happen, it would be so complex to make it happen that it can't possibly be. They just need to blow off some steam. Nope, that's not right. The fact is the police in some places can effectively be halted in their tracks. And really, if there's one most important lesson out of the whole Evergreen fiasco is that the police can be withdrawn from a situation and chaos takes a matter of hours to emerge, which we're also seeing in Seattle. Okay, a couple of really important points here. He starts talking about uh, Occupy. He was a part of the Occupy movement. Again, Brett Weinstein is uber liberal. Okay, so the fact that Brett Weinstein and I are from this interview on Joe Rogan's podcast are uh, in, on the same page in the same camp, seeing the same things, but with a different underlying rationale because I'm coming from a a Christian biblical perspective and he isn't. But the fact that we're on the same page is fascinating. It's because we're both trying to deal with reality or truth. He's divorced his emotions from this and he's thinking logically. Remember, this is a PhD. he's, He's no idiot. He's not a commoner on the street. Okay, this is a really, really smart guy. But he's talking about there were some good aspects of Occupy, dealing with economic uh, preferences for big corporations and big businesses in Wall Street, which I see that and agree with that. And they also acknowledged, and this is uh, interesting, he acknowledged the Tea Party had s- similar uh, in terms of justifying their gripes. They had a lot of gripes that were justifiable. But then he's saying this, the BLM movement, what we're seeing right now in the streets is morphed. It, that, that, that Originally, the Occupy movement morphed. It became an anarchist movement, which was hostile to civilization. There's that big worldview existential thinking again. And then became absurd. 
Then he goes, this is Occupy 2.0. It's fused. This anarchist hostile to civilization has fused with Black Lives Matter, which is why he said, if, hey, listen, at the BLM, at the Black Lives Matter movement, and I completely agree with this. I'm, tr- I'm, tr- I'm walking this fine line on the air pretty much every day. That uh, if it simply met what the words imply, Black Lives Matter, and we need to pay special attention to that because of what's been happening to the black community in America for uh, a long time. Okay, I'm totally down with that. But he's saying uh, he'd be on board with it, but it doesn't. It doesn't simply mean what those words imply. And Joe Rogan asked him, well, what else does it mean? He goes, well, he's talking about abolishing the police, which is totally stupid. And Joe is like, hey, you know, isn't that a fearful response just kind of blowing off steam? And he's like, uh, no, it, it isn't just a fearful response. These are, these are proposals that are quite foolish, Brett said, while the strategy is incredibly smart. And so, yes, uh, civil unrest, attention, massive protests, that strategy has always, almost always been effective. But in this case, what are the mean? I mean, what are the ends? And things like uh, abolishing the police or uh, really behind it, underneath it, hostile to civilization in general. These are big worldview existential things, which is where Brett is playing. This is the sandbox he's playing in. He's trying to drag, drag Joe Rogan into that box, and he does a good job as we move into this. But he's talking about, listen, here's another thing, and then we'll move on. Uh, you withdraw the police and chaos emerges. We see that all over the place, right? Why do you think that happens? Do you think that people are basically good, that we're just decent people? We, we have bad days. At some bad moments, getting a lurch, you know, getting a bad situation, or do you think people are naturally kind of bent towards bad? Because when you remove restraint, in this case, the police or any government, and you leave people to their own devices, it might start off nice, like it did in Chaz slash Chop. It started off nice, but it didn't take long to start descending into chaos. Uh, nature abhors a vacuum, so then overlords and power players start getting in there. They arm themselves and they start taking over right? And other people cower in fear. That, for me as a biblical Christian, is the sin nature of mankind. Everybody's got the same problem. And when you unleash that, which is why God ordained government as one of his institutions, when you take restrictions out, when you take restraint out, when you get the government and or the police out, and you leave people to their natural devices, it's going to get ugly fast, which is what Brett's talking about where he's trying to drag Joe and why I'm bringing this up today on my podcast. So let's go to the next one. This is super important. This takes this whole BLM, what's going on around the country, Confederate statues, brings it up to a much higher universal level, which is where we need to be thinking. You need to see behind the curtains or underneath the superstructure. Don't remain ignorant to the bigger issues here because these are massive issues that are driving the whole thing. Okay, let's jump to the next clip. The part that I'm worried about is that I also, I think I hear you grasping at straws, and frankly, they're familiar. I hear everybody grasping at straws here. And what I think is not getting said is that brutal policing is a feature, not a bug, right? This is part of a system that is about something else. And to the extent that I think we can all recognize that there is something absolutely organic about the anger that has caused people to spill into the streets in large numbers, that anger is the result of a process that does not begin with policing. It begins with economic phenomena and political phenomena. And one of the things that spooks me is this movement, in part because it is leaderless and I would argue rudderless, it is not correctly addressing the actual problem. It is lashing out at things that it can see. It's lashing out Mm. at anecdotes. But the only solution here, the only proper solution that 
actually saves the republic is a solution that addresses the core problem. Economic despair, communities that are filled with crime and violence and gangs, and the people that come out of these communities with very little hope, and all the models that they operate under, the, what, what they model themselves on, is what they see around them, which is all this crime. And they, they don't have this sense that there's a very clear path out of this. Wow. I mean, again, such an important uh, turn in this conversation as Brett is bringing up that this isn't, uh, we, we look at brutal policing, that brings about anger, that's the result of a process, so, but it's not actually about brutal policing. It's not about policing at all. And he, and he said, this was just a beautiful point. They're, they're lashing out at what they can see, but it's not really about the police. Ultimately, it's not really about racism or race either. And then Joe comes in and brings up all these issues. This is right at the heart of it. This is what really grips my heart the most as a Christian and should grip all of our hearts as human beings. When he starts ta- painting a picture of the hopelessness that exists, and, and a, lot, a lot of this is uh, economic hopelessness, it, hopelessness that exists when you grow up in an area where you just don't see a way out. You just don't see anybody doing well, the, the people above you, the next, the generation above, the generation above them, stuck in the hood, stuck in poverty, stuck in these places. You don't see any way out. And it's just hopelessness and hopelessness is going to lead to rage. Because, and then you're just going to, you just want to lash out because of the brokenness and the hopelessness. And again, for me as a Christian, I'm just listening to this going, I understand what you're talking about. I understand the hopelessness when the world cannot give you something that your heart, your soul, your very uh, inner self longs for, which is some justice and some hope and a future and a desire to have community and to be in healthy relationships. And when all that's broken, especially in the, in the uh, impoverished areas, whether you're black or white, hopelessness just gets destroyed. Back to something I said earlier in the podcast. I, I'm using the language of the devil right now. Kill, steal, destroy. That's what he wants. He's the exact opposite of what God wants for your life. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. So hopelessness is like Christmas morning for the devil. Hopelessness. And that's what this is ultimately about. There's hopelessness here. And a lot of that's based on economics, which is partially driven by race, but also driven by a broken human system where people that have don't generally care that much about people that have not. And that's also part of our broken sin nature. And Christianity addresses that as well. Because then you start to see, wow, I'm a steward of what I've been given. Actually, nothing that I have is actually mine. Everything I have is a blessing from my creator. And I should be generous with it as he's been generous towards me. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ hangs on a cross in order to pay the penalty for your sin. And you're not, and, and you haven't even acknowledged him at all. If you're anything like I was, I'm like, yeah, whatever. Jesus Christ, biblical Christian, whatever. I don't care. It has nothing to do with me. Knowing that, he still died for me. He still paid my bill. He still paid my penalty. And so that kind of generosity then flows into you as a Christian, and you want that to flow out. You start seeing people different. You start seeing poverty different. You start seeing your own uh, success differently. And on the other hand, you start seeing your own lack of it differently because you're not going to look to the things of the world. Ultimately, you need what you need to survive and to be able to provide for yourself and your family. 
but to give you the, the bling bling life and everything that you see on social media and the, and the perfect little Instagram life no longer has that kind of attractiveness. So you won't sell your soul to get it. So these are just great points that these guys are, are getting close, but not to the heart of the matter because they're not operating out of a, a Christian perspective, a biblical perspective, God's perspective. I know you're sitting there going, oh, yeah, whatever, but you just hear me out episode after episode of this podcast as I bring that to bear with these issues and with these really popular podcasts and podcast hosts and guests. And if you listen long enough, hopefully you're going to hear, you're going to hear truth. And that's why I'm intersecting with Brett and Joe Rogan here. Let's go on to the next clip. These are really good. So now you have two parties that are basically dealing with competing business interests, vying for power. But what that does is it excludes the interests of regular folks. And so regular folks have been getting the shaft ever since. Nobody is representing their interests. They're getting wise to it. And they're feeling the effects on the street. They are feeling the system is rigged. It's rigged against them. It's not even evenly rigged against them. So, you know, in black communities, there's a perception it's specifically rigged against us. And you know what? It is. But the way it is is very subtle, right? It's not a matter of racism being ubiquitous, you know, inside every white head. It's not like that. It's, this has very little to do with modern racism. But what it has to do with is a property of our system. So, you know, um, there's a cybernetic principle. The purpose of a system is what it does. It means that don't listen to what somebody says that the system is for. Look at what it accomplishes. That's what mm. it's for. And our system basically has two things that it accomplishes. Um, it basically keeps real change from happening. And the reason it keeps real change from happening is because people who are winning in the present system will continue to win if the system continues to do what it does. And they may lose if the system changes and starts doing something else. So it creates what I would argue is a kind of organic conservatism. Those with power don't want change because it threatens them. And the other thing that our system does is it reproduces present uh, patterns of distribution into the future. And what that means is racism that has almost died out is still alive and well in a sense because all you have to do is take people who are born into a neighborhood that is uh, devoid of opportunity and continue that pattern. If no opportunity shows up, then people who were oppressed are now going to continue to be oppressed. And so it feels personal, but it isn't. It's just reproducing an existing pattern. Again, Brett Weinstein's really smart, and I really appreciate Joe Rogan having him on. And Brett Weinstein, again, very liberal, okay? But I'm finding myself agreeing with him uh, a lot throughout all of this. So he, he, in this particular clip, he's talking about he's talking about the two political parties, all right? The two parties in power with powerful interests. And both the, the, when Clinton became the president, the Democrat Party started to be the party of big business as well. And so you've got all kinds of abuse of power and taking care of itself, Within the system and government, within Washington, D.C., all right, which is why we, we, a lot of us, a lot more of us should be saying, throw the bums out. Not every single person in Washington, D.C. and the federal government is corrupt, but I think most of them are. And so that's where you end up. And Brett said this regular people get hosed. They get the shaft that they that they seem like the system is rigged against them because largely it is on the right and the left which, by the way, is what gave rise to some of Donald Trump's popularity in the 2016 campaign is that he reached out to those kind of forgotten uh, majority, the silent majority, forgotten people, the regular folks who were feeling hosed by both the Republicans and the Democrats, and, and Trump was willing to attack all of them. So he became your attack dog to go against a system 
that you think is necessarily hosing you. <laughs> and in many ways, that's true. And then he ties in, Brett ties it into the racism thing, which is saying that, uh, you know, that then that shows up. It's, it's kind of feels like racism, but it actually isn't it. And he brings up this notion of, uh, uh, cybernetic systems and the purpose of the system. It is what it does. Look at the results. The system takes care of itself. This is really important to see this. And, and, and my Republican friends, you better be willing to admit this because this is just true. And this is based on human nature. Back to my Christianity again. Okay. Number one, it keeps real change from happening because the winners want to keep winning. So we want to keep the system. That's kind of a natural conservatism. Brett called it. Winners keep winning. They don't want to lose. And, and those with the power and the Republicans, the Democrats, they don't, they don't want to lose their power. So they like the, the cybernetic system. <laughs> they like the results, of course. And then number two, to the race issue, it reproduces present patterns into the future. So he said it kind of feels racist, although we're largely beyond that as a country with individuals, like saying that racism uh, is ubiquitous. It's everywhere all the time. No, it isn't. It's better now than it was in the 1960s. It's better in the 1960s than it was in the 1860s. Okay, it is better. It's not completely gone, but it's better. But then we think it's it's everything's tainted with the with the sin of racism. Uh, no, that's just not true. You got to look at the system again. We're back to a bigger conversation. And he brings this up: it, it reproduces pre- present patterns into the future. So if you're born into a bad neighborhood, there's no way out. That's a continuous pattern. You can't go anywhere, and it feels personal, thus racist. So again, we're back to hopelessness. We're back to lack of economic opportunity. We're back to uh, really a a dereliction of duty when it comes to the founding principles of the country that every man, woman, and child has certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And when you feel like you can't, you don't have any liberty and you can't pursue happiness, wow, that's a problem, which drives rage and rage pours into the streets, which is what we're seeing today, okay? So from a Christian perspective, everything going on in the news makes perfect sense. All right, let's jump to this next clip, and then we're going to finish up here pretty quick. Why are you seeing something that looks uh, like a communist revolution beginning in the streets for the natural reason, which is that people are feeling excluded from uh, from their share, and they are being excluded. But this revolution that is beginning in our streets is no more coherent or desirable than you know than Maoism, and it's going to be brutal and in the Maoist way or possibly the way that it unfolded in the French Revolution or maybe it'll be some you know, unique version and it'll get its own name. But if we want the republic to survive, we're going to have to prevent this from happening. And because it's a leaderless movement, who do you even talk to? Who do you reason with? Yeah, that's what's fascinating about it, right? Because it's emerging not just in America, but it's also in England. It's in, it's in all, all parts of the world people are protesting. I see this leaderless movement and it, it seems so attractive to young people that do feel disenfranchised by the system. So I, I watch them. I mean, I've seen so many videos of these people out there screaming and cheering and chanting, and they feel like they're a part of something, right? And they are, right? But what is that thing that they're a part of? Like, what's the end goal? That doesn't seem to have been really clear. Like, there's kids out in, uh, they were out in um, Woodland Hills out there chanting, no justice, no peace. And I'm like, okay, what justice are you talking about? Are you talking about George Floyd? Well, that in that case, it seems like that guy's going to go to jail for the rest of his life. And I, I don't know if that's justice or not. That police department has been disbanded. 
I don't know if that's justice or not. But what is justice and what is peace? It's just a slogan, but they feel good saying it. No justice, no peace. But what I don't know what you're saying, but you feel very passionate about what you're saying. And I, I think if you pulled one of those kids aside and said, what's your message and what are you trying to do? I think a lot of them would have nothing to say. And that's what's, that's very concerning to me. I'm very concerned about that because it seems like they're very enthusiastic and passionate about an invisible enemy and an enemy that they can't, they can't put on a scale. They can't tangibly describe it in a way that I, I understand it completely. It just seems like the structure of things they feel like is, is unjust. It is unfortunately a zombified collective fighting a boogeyman that they have invented. Okay, Jill bringing up some great points here. And if you've watched any interviews with these people that are out on the streets at the protests, uh, this should ring true to you. And he's like, what is it that they are a part of? What's the end goal? They chant no justice and no peace. But what if you ask them, well, what justice are you looking for? George Floyd, the cop was arrested, most likely going to go to jail for the rest of his life. Is that justice? And what kind of peace are you looking for? Uh, just a slogan, Joe said, but they feel good saying it. And so I hear that and I go, no justice, no peace. Hmm. Well, you see the injustice in the world. And as a Christian, I see the injustice all over the place because I have a clear definition of what is just. Just is <clears throat> that which is equal or equates to or is in line with God's uh, decrees, God's personality, who God is. Looking out for the poor, looking out for the outsider, looking out for the uh, unborn, looking out for the widow, for the fatherless. Uh, being willing to serve others rather than yourself, living for something bigger than yourself, being willing to sacrifice, all these kinds. So if a, to me as a Christian, if, if something is just, it equates with God's character. If it's unjust, that's because it violates God's character. And these people are seeing things that are unjust. You see them all over the place, all the time. And, and so you, you realize there's no justice ultimately, although <laughs> the last thing anybody wants if you face God is justice. Because then you're going to be held accountable for everything you've ever done to violate who God is. And that list of sins for you and for me is long and egregious. Okay, So we don't want ultimate justice. We want present justice or some definition of, the, of it. And then no peace. I'm like, well, until you get in a right relationship with your creator, you're not at peace with him. You can't have peace. And so Joe bringing up just some really prescient points here. And he says, you just take one aside. Well, hey, what's your message? What are you trying to do? A lot of them would have nothing to say. And that's true. Well, I've watched so many different little interviews on the street interviews with some of these folks, whether it's at Chaz or Chop or just some of these protests, and they just kind of stumble all over themselves. There is an anger. Joe said that, you know, it's like they're fighting an invisible enemy, which reminds me of what Trump said about the coronavirus. But there's this anger. There's just this brokenness. Nothing's right. There's no justice. There's no peace. And, 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 and what do I do? What do I do? Well, get out here and protest even though it starts being about police brutality and racism. But it's much bigger and much deeper than that. And then Brett says something that's really powerful. A zombified collective fighting a boogeyman that they have invented. Meaning, oh, it's the man. Tear the system down. we got to burn the system down. And replace it with what? What are you actually all upset about? Well, racism. Yeah, but racism, okay, I'm with you there. Police brutality. So eliminate all the police. Let's turn the, the streets over to, uh, well, each other. And then, uh, this, yeah, all uh, the America's past, our form of government, get rid of it all. There's something much bigger going on than just police brutality and racism. 
And it's and you see this, a zombified collection, collective fighting a boogeyman that they have invented. What are they actually trying to do? It's just this rage against the machine. And it's not just in America, it's worldwide. And want to know why it's worldwide? Because humanity is worldwide. And all humans have the same problems. There's nothing new under the sun, somebody once wrote. That would be Solomon, King David's son in the Old Testament. There's nothing new under the sun. New news is just old news happening to new people because human nature has not changed. And it's, and it's knowable and it's predictable. And that's what we're seeing here. Okay, one more clip, then we'll wrap it up. This Again, I'm just trying to elevate the conversation for all of us to think much more deeply and much more broadly and in a, in a way much more philosophically and I would say theologically about what we're seeing happening here in our country and around the world. Okay, one more clip. There's something in us being raised in the U.S. There's something in us that thinks that the great leap forward in China cannot happen here, that what happened in Cambodia cannot happen here, mm. that Nazi Germany cannot happen here. Right. Um, and, you know, the Soviet Union couldn't happen here. I don't know what characteristic it is that people think makes it impossible. I don't think it's impossible. I think if there is a characteristic that makes it unlikely, it is the structure, it is the constitution, which I would argue is showing its age, but nonetheless, the values that America aspires to, the reason that the world does pay attention to us and still, even with all of our brokenness, allows us to lead it, that reason is that the values that were described were honorable, even if, they, even if we didn't meet them. But what we aspired to be was great. And uh, I, you know, I resent Trump's uh, Make America Great Again because there are populations for whom it has simply never been great. Right? So I, I think that last A in MAGA is just a finger in the eye for people and it was designed to be. But the structure, what it aspires to be is great and heading in the direction in which it could be great for everybody is obviously the right thing to do. But what we are now doing and the thing that troubles me most about this movement is that if you listen to it closely, and I have listened to it very closely, it is explicitly about disassembling the very things that make the West marvelous. Holy cow. All right. This is, <laughs> there's so much depth here. I mean, just amazing. Uh, okay. Let's start. But he's talking about something in us that thinks the great leap forward, that's China, the communist takeover of China, China, Cambodia, Nazi Germany, USSR, some of the worst atrocities in the history of the world. And, and he's saying there's something in us as Americans that think certainly that can't happen here. That, that can't happen here. He's like, well, what is it? That's a great question. What is it within us, most Americans that think that can't happen here? I think we might be entertaining it a little bit more these days. But generally, people would think, can America become China, Cambodia, Nazi Germany, the USSR? No, no. But Brett says, and I would agree, that's not impossible. But if it's unlikely, he's pointing to what, what would make most Americans think that can't happen here? And he says, it's our structure. Now, now I'm going to drag a biblical worldview back in here because this, this is a matter of fact. Okay, The structure. What is the structure? Well, he mentions the Constitution, which means our founding principles, and, va and values that we aspire to were honorable. Now, we haven't executed those perfectly. We haven't executed them for everybody. But the, the founding principles, the structure, is honorable. And he said, and interesting that he uses the same word that I use, our brokenness. Despite our brokenness, the world still looks to America for a lot of leadership. So what's going on there? What's in this structure? The Constitution, these principles, these values that 
uh, that we aspire to, which are honorable. What it aspires to be is great. And he got his little jab in there about make America great again. And I understand where he's coming from and largely agree with it. But, but where, where does that flow out of? What, what's the soil out of which those, that structure, that constitution, those good principles come out of? It comes out of a Judeo-Christian worldview. That's where it comes. Whether you like to hear that or not is irrelevant. Is it true? Now, I wrote a 50-page research paper for my master's degree on the influence of a Judeo-Christian worldview on the Declaration of Independence. I called it the dependence of the Declaration of Independence on a Judeo-Christian worldview. And on a scale from 1 to 10, how much impact did a Judeo-Christian biblical worldview have on the Declaration of Independence and then on our way of life in general, as you would find it governmentally in the Constitution, I would put it at a 6 or a 7 out of 10. Very significant. So, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, all men are created equal. These are all beautiful, soaring things that we should aspire to. They're all honorable, and they're all biblical. That's where our founding fathers pulled that from. I'm not saying that every single founding father was a Bible-beating, born-again Christian nut like I am, a Jesus nut. But all of them had very strong biblical worldviews. All of them subscribe to the wisdom found in the Bible. Now, people like Jefferson had his, like his dry, dry erase version of the Bible because Jefferson called himself a Christian, but based on what the Bible teaches, he wasn't. Jesus isn't uh, God's son. He didn't die on a cross and resurrect three days later. He wasn't virgin born. I don't believe in miracles. So Jefferson had a really screwy version that he built for himself. But nevertheless, setting that aside, the, the ground out of which these honorable principles came out of, which Brett uh, Weinstein is noticing and saying and agreeing, these are honorable, these are good, these are lofty. They came out of the ground, out of the soil of Christianity. Whether you like to hear that or not is irrelevant, but that's where they came from. Okay? And that's what he's talking about. Then he gets, he goes, I've been listening to this movement. I'm listening to it closely, Brett Weinstein said. It's explicitly about disassembling the very things that make the West marvelous. What is it that makes the West marvelous? It's principles that it aspires to. Where do those principles come from? They came out of a Judeo-Christian ethic. That's where they came out of. That's their origin. Okay? So what is this about ultimately? It's about raging against the machine. What machine? The machine of holiness, righteousness, justice, accountability, and judgment. What machine is that? That's God. So if you're separated from God and you don't want to deal with that accountability because you violated his laws, you're going you're gonna to do everything you can to just tear down anything that reminds you of him or looks like him or sounds like him. So one of the things going on right now, explicitly about disassembling the very things that make the West marvelous, is rage against God. I don't want to be judged. I don't want to be held accountable. I got to do something with that. I got to make myself feel good. I got to feel justified, even though I know I'm probably in trouble. If there is a creator, he's created the moral law. We've all violated the moral law. And so, wow, you just have this, you just have this rage against the machine. And you see that spill out into the streets. And that's what's ultimately above, behind, and below what we're seeing. Not that every single person out there is an unbeliever that rejects God or hates God. 
because there's plenty of uh, well-meaning Christians out there too that care about their neighbors, care about racism, care about police brutality, care about the unjust that they see uh, across America in many different ways, and they're engaging. But the ones that are violent, the ones that want to tear down the whole system, that's what Brett sees. That's what I see every day. Do you see it? Do you see it for what it is? I would ask you to consider that. Well, there you have it. Another episode in the can. Hopefully not the trash can. Listen, I really appreciate you taking some of your valuable time to listen. And I hope this episode of Who Is This SOB was a blessing to you in some way. Perhaps it caused you to reconsider some of your own positions or just provided a perspective that you've never really considered before. Either way, I hope we can advance these important conversations together. So please subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And be sure to visit the website, whoisthissob.com, where you can share your unfiltered opinion about the show or even me personally, if you just have to go there. And be sure to check out the page on Heaven if you have any of those kinds of questions. God willing, we'll meet again real soon. And like my dad always used to say, ever forward. Ever forward.